Ecclesiastes 3, reading verses 1 through 15 this morning. Excuse me, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us as we give attention to your word this morning. Lord, help us this morning by the power of your Spirit to take heed of what your Word has to teach us this morning. Lord, instruct us, help us, guide us through your divinely inspired Word. Lord, your Word stands true. Your Word stands the test of time. And so we pray that you would accomplish your good purposes for us this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we covered the end of chapter 2. And in chapter 224, we saw this wonderful transition from the secular life, the person who does not know God and the pursuit of the good life and trying to define what the good life is and what is the meaning and purpose of life to then this transition in 224 to sort of a a God-entranced vision of life. A life that believes in God, a, a life that trusts in God, a life that is a good life that is defined 
first and foremost by a relationship with God. And this God and transvision then carries over into chapter 3. In this particular section, it seems to be anchored on this concept of time. Time, seasons, eternity. 28 times the word time is used in this particular section. Which I think then lends itself to sort of a broader topic concerning the providence of God. And so as we walk through this particular section, I think one way to sort of picture this section is to imagine or consider sort of a, a divine play. Right, so if you've ever been to a play before, right, they are actors, there's a story, it's a climax, and of course, with any good play or with any good story, there is a conclusion. And in every play or in every story, there is an author, there is a director. So thinking of it this way, I see two particular points from this passage. The first is the setting, the setting of the divine play. So when we come to this first section in verses 1 through 8, a particular tendency might be to try to take each statement and try to sort of interpret it individually, though there is some, I think, benefit to that. I think it's better to sort of try to interpret it as a collective whole. And even this section belongs to the next part of chapter 3. So verses three, verses 1 through 15, that's essentially one section. I don't know, depending on which translation you might have, it sort of cuts it in half into two different sections. Verses 1 through 8, and then 9 through 15. I think it's best to take it as one single unit. But when we take this particular part in verses 1 through 8, a time for this, time for that, time for this, time for that, what then does it actually mean when we try to take it and interpret it all together? And I think it's sort of a generalization of what man's life is. Not that each and every single individual person experiences every single one of these times or seasons in his or her life, but generally, broadly speaking, human life what all existence consists of all these different times and seasons. Time to mourn, time to dance, time to weep, time to laugh, time to break down, a time to build up. And this essentially, I think, points us to two different things. First, is the point that the teacher from the very beginning of the chapter has tried to emphasize, has tried to help the reader to see, and that is the vanity of life apart from God. Apart from God, essentially, life just consists of these cycles that are on repeat over and over and over again. It consists of these different times, of these seasons, temporary experiences, right? Because one gives way to another, mourning, then laugh. But then how long is it until that laugh then turns again to mourning? Then to laugh, then to mourning, then to laugh over and over and over again. War gives way to peace, which gives way to war. Silence gives way to speech, which then eventually gives way to silence. And on and on it goes. A repetitious cycle that we saw earlier, if you've been following along with us, back in chapter 1. Seasons come, seasons go, generations come, generations go. The sun rises, the sun sets over and over and over again. 
The second thing that this points us to, I think, is the uncontrollable nature of time. Right? Oftentimes, what we, what we do in each time, in each season, is sort of, we react. Now, to some degree, yes, we have some control over the things that we experience in our lives. But for the most part, our lives are lived in reaction to things. Things happen in our lives. Things happen in the lives of those closest to us. Things happen to our children. Things happen in our marriages. Things happen in our jobs. Things happen in the world. And all we can really do is react. These things happen and we have no control over these things. It sort of pictures time as a sort of, the sort of prison that our life consists of these moments in time, many of which we don't have any control over. And essentially, it's trying to show us just how finite we really are. We have no control. Even though we seem to think that we do have a lot of control, we really don't. The popular poem, I'm sure many of you have heard it before, the poem Invictus, known most by the last two lines in that poem, which ends that I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. A poem about resilience, courage, fortitude in the midst of trial, tragedy, and suffering. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, I think would strongly, strongly disagree with that. No, man is not the captain of his fate. Man is not the master of his soul. What then is the master of his fate and captain of his soul? He would say time is. Time is the master of man's fate. Time is the master of the captain of his soul. Because there's the seasons, there's times, there's these moments that for the most part you and I have no control over. They come upon us. Many times without our having enough time to prepare for them. Man is confined to the boundaries of time. And unless man can control time itself, then he can never be master of his own fate or the captain of his own soul. Much less master of his own fate and destiny. Essentially, this section helps to sets the stage for the drama. It tells us that the setting of the play is the world and that life itself, and that each season or each time is sort of what life consists of. It's what the, the play consists of. Each time, each season is a different act in the play. And the actors, that is you and I, we have no control over the times and seasons. All we can do is sort of respond, try to respond appropriately according to each time and according to each season. However, lest we think that time itself is sort of this, this entity, this force outside of us, the passage makes clear that there is one who stands above time, one who has made time subservient to him, and that is God. That while man 
may think that he is the master of his fate. No, time is. But it also even further than that, no. Whether you are a believer or not, the passage makes clear, the teacher makes clear, no, God is ultimately the master of your own fate and the captain of your soul. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. The teacher is presenting man with a reality, and that is that man is subservient to time, that his life is ultimately governed by time, and time is ultimately governed by God. And so even the life of every single person's life is ultimately governed by the hand of God. But the teacher helps us, and he helps us to see the God-entranced vision of all things. And he tells us, he shows us that ultimately God is the director in the divine play. He's the director of human life and events. God made everything beautiful in its time. Which I think is a reference to creation itself back in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Continually pointing us to the goodness of creation, but at the same time also pointing us to the corruption of creation. God made everything beautiful, and what is the reason why everything is not beautiful anymore because of sin, because of violence, because of evil. The world and life itself is a stage that God has created. John Calvin, I'm sort of paraphrasing his statement, but he essentially had once said that the world is a theater for the display of the glory of God. So Ecclesiastes is giving us reality that man is subject, that he is confined within each successive time or season or each act in the play. And that he cannot move forward to the next act. He cannot move backwards to acts that have already happened. He is bound to the present of his own existence. Furthermore, Ecclesiastes is giving us the reality that God made the world, that God made the stage, and that God created the actors, and that God is the one who moves the play along according to his will and purposes, according to his own time. And that he has even placed eternity into the heart of man. So in every single human heart, there is this desire for eternity for permanence, for something substantial, for some sort of transcendence. Everyone has it, but it's suppressed. Romans 1.18 speaks of this suppression where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. 
So embedded in the heart of every human person is the knowledge of God, that God, that man knows God, that no, man knows that there is a God, that there is a divine creator, that there is a divine director. But that truth is suppressed in unrighteousness and evil and sin, and that even the truth of eternity, a desire for eternity, is also suppressed in unrighteousness. There's a grasping, there's a grasping for transcendence. Many people describe this wonder as mysterious, overpowering, impossible to put into human words, awesome, unbelievable, breathtaking, majestic. Those are the words that people typically use to describe the Grand Canyon. And if you've been there, if you've seen it with your own eyes before, then you would probably affirm those words or probably find other words to describe what your eyes saw that day if you've ever visited the Grand Canyon. But when people use those words, when people describe the Grand Canyon in that way, awesome, breathtaking, majestic, awesome, unbelievable, it says something about the human heart. Why do people travel such distances to go see the Grand Canyon? Why do people travel such distances across the world to experience different things, to see different wonders in the world? It's because people are grasping for transcendence. Because people, I think, actually like to feel small. Because people like to look at and watch and stare at and behold things that are much bigger than themselves. Because to some degree, people like to feel that they are actually not the master of their own fate and destiny. Because, man, what a responsibility to carry. People go to these sites because they are grasping for transcendence, because they are looking for something much bigger than themselves. And people want that, and people want to feel that way because God placed that desire in the heart of man. God has placed that desire in the heart of man. And even with that desire, man cannot discover the mysteries of God. Man cannot behold the works of God. It points to man's limitations. They cannot go back, discover the mysteries of God. They cannot move forward to see how things will turn out. We are fixed into the present of our own time while at the same time having this yearning in our heart for something transcendent to exist, for this existence that goes beyond the present. So that man is an actor in the theater of God, with God as its director. And as a director, God has written the script, he's determined the number of acts, and he moves the acts along when he sees fit to do so. And he's ultimately the one who will bring the drama to an end. Which then leads us to the second point of this section, which is the direction, the direction of the divine play. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
also that everyone should eat and drink, take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Essentially, he says, as those who are bound to the present of our own time, there's nothing better than to enjoy God's good gifts, to be content with what God has given to us. And to do good. Now, doing good here, I don't think essentially, I don't think it necessarily means sort of philanthropic efforts or doing good to others like good works, so that is important, but I don't think it's actually a concern in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. The doing good here, I think, is actually doing those things that lend itself to joy-filled living. Doing those things that bring delight and joy. But also keeping in mind the great anthem, of, I think, of Ecclesiastes, as the anthem that we get at the end of the book, where he says, there's nothing better that man shall live in the fear of God and keep his commandments. So essentially, do those things that bring joy to your life, living in the fear of God. It is a call to be content within the limitations of each act. While there is a grasping for eternity, the desire for transcendence, there is a call in this passage to submit to God's divine script. And within each act, each individual actor must play his part and must say their lines. But we know because we see it and because we experience it ourselves that man does not submit to the divine script. Hence why there is sin. Hence why there is evil. Hence why there is wickedness. Hence why there is war in Ukraine right now because man refuses to submit to the script that God has written. And when you have man that does not submit to God's script, what you get is an absolute chaos and mess. It is for this reason that sin was introduced in the world in the first place, because Adam desired to be like God, grasping for a transcendence that wasn't his, for an eternality that could have been his if he had continued to remain obedient and faithful unto God, but instead he wanted it now and committed sin, disobeyed God, went off script, and then sin entered the world. Now certainly each person in God's theater and play has their own respective roles to play. But there's one, sort of this golden cord that weaves in and out out of every human life that remains consistent throughout that really speaks to the role that we are called to play in our lives in God's grand theater. Revelation, or rather, a couple of passages there, but I'm going to skip down to 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is a great theme of our lives, to live 
for the glory of God, to live for the one who made us, to live according to the script, because that is what gives God glory. Even Jesus himself made it his aim to glorify God. In John 17, 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The hour of his crucifixion has come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? Or for what purpose? So that the Son may glorify you. Even Jesus submitted to the script. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching at Pentecost, the crowds, it says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus submitted to the divine scripts, even though he agonized about it, even though it meant his going to the cross. We see, if you read in the Gospels, his agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, God, if there is another way, let there, let there be another way, but nevertheless, let your will be done and not mine. Ultimately, even though he wanted a way out that didn't require him to go to the cross and die for our sins, nevertheless, his desire ultimately was to submit to God's script and praise God that he did. Jesus submitted himself to the script. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the creator of the world, Jesus who created time itself, came into the world in human form, even bound himself to the limitations that we experience in times and seasons. And even submitted himself to an agonizing death on the cross. And even submitted himself to the only, one, to the only means of escape for the times and seasons that we experience in this life. And that only escape is death. Even Jesus submitted himself to death. As the scriptures declare, death could not hold Jesus. God raised Christ Jesus from the dead and is right now reigning in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. T.S. Eliot Missionary once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done in Christ will last. You and I can spend a lot of time talking about what does it mean to do those things in Christ that will last. For you this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has put eternity into your heart. It's a desire, a yearning for transcendence. And if you want to do something now that will count unto eternity, the one thing that you could do, that you should consider doing, that you should do today, is give your life to Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess your sins to the Lord. Confess that you have been living your life off script. Commit to living your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ committing yourself to living to the, according to the divine script in confession of sin, repentance of sins, and turning to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. God wants to teach us that He is the author of time, the changer of seasons, that He is the one who determines when the act should transition from one to the next, 
And there's nothing that we can do to change the axe. Nothing that we can do to move it along or to have it move backwards. It is all in God's time. They are fixed. Which then brings us to briefly consider the topic of God's providence. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, it defines the providence of God as the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Essentially, it means that God is in control of all things. From the events of history to the very food that you put in your mouth, God is in control of all of it. He governs all things. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck. Every action that is taken by the actors within God's drama are governed by the hand of God, even when man goes off script. Those actions... Every careless word, every careless thought, every careless deed that is not consistent with God's divine script, God is governing them. God is in control of them. It doesn't mean that God makes them do it. As if God is responsible for man's sin. But rather that God sees them and God uses them for his glorious purposes and the good of his people. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You may cast the die, you may give it up to chance, you may say chance dictated how the die landed, but no. The scriptures teach us God is ultimately the one who determines how the die lands. Abraham and Sarah Sarah, who was beautiful, Abraham was afraid of being killed on account of his wife. Give up his wife, who was taken up by King Abimelech. And in that story, God makes clear to a dream that he kept King Abimelech from even touching this man's wife. That God so governed the actions of this king to keep him from touching another person's wife. In John chapter 9, with the story of the man born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, who, was, who sinned this man's parents that he was born blind? And Jesus responds, it was not this man that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, the reason why this man was born blind was for the glory of God. We see that even God was taking control and governing the life of this man, even in the womb. We see the providence of God most vividly in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. James 4.13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other, in other words, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And to affirm or to say that the Lord wills 
right? We desire to do this. We want to do this. We're planning to do this. But when we say, if the Lord wills, it means God ultimately is what permits my plans to come to fruition. Or he may decide to not allow my plans to come to fruition. God governs our time and season. Even goes even further and says, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and he pursues what is driven away, which I think is a reference to the past. In other words, God has his eye on the future, on the present, and on the past. As God, who is author of time, right, he stands outside of time. So if you can imagine, God can actually see past, present, and future all at the same time. And so he can see how one event affects another. He can use the events of the past and, and work them out and weave them all throughout time and history for his own glorious purposes that he has fixed. But we also know that he's not only a God that stands outside of time, but he's also a God that acts in time as well which we see in the sending of the Son of God into the world, into our own time to save his people from their sins. All events, past, present, and future, God sees as if they have already happened. It doesn't mean that there isn't, sort, that there isn't free will, right? Just because God already knows what you and I are going to do or even think or say does not mean that there is no freedom of choice. Because even though may, God may know what I'm about to do after I go home today, it doesn't mean that God makes a choice for me. God may know what you're going to do or what you're going to say, but God does not make the decision for you. Foreknowledge does not mean that God takes away your choice any more than you putting before me a vegetable and a cupcake. Ten out of ten times, I'm always going to choose a cupcake because if you know me, I don't like vegetables. But just because you know how I'm going to choose doesn't mean that you're taking the choice away from me, does it? And also free choice or free will is affirmed by the very fact that God commands in his scriptures for people to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that each person will be judged according to that decision. And as we think about the providence of God, and as we think about the script that God has written, and you see when you, when you have actors in a play where they have the script, they can see everything. They know the past, the beginning, or they can know the past, the present, they can know how it all ends. And the same way God has written for us the script, and he's also written for us how things will end. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, we see this picture of the end where it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We have the script, and we know how it's all going to end. And this is what encourages us to continue to look to the script. We go through trials, we go through these seasons that are difficult for us when we hear of war and rumors of war and see war and the headlines. We have a tendency to forget, or we have a tendency, yeah, we have a tendency to forget that there is an end in sight to all of these things. We need only to look the script, the word, the book of Revelation, and be reminded, yes, there is an end in sight. There is an encouragement. There is a comfort for all those who continue to live in the fear of God and keep God's commandments, living by faith in the Son of God. And so with this divine play with God as a director, with the world and our lives being sort of the stage where one act is lived successively, one following another, then another, what is exactly our part in the script? First, our part is to simply look at the script. Look at the script over and over and over again. The Word of God is our script. We should continue to look to the script, especially because we too, at times, struggle with keeping to the script, don't we? Sometimes we go off script. Sometimes we're not consistent with what God has written for us. We have a struggle keeping to the script. You know, in plays, when actors forget their lines, they need prompts from another actor. Maybe it's sort of a suggestion. Maybe it's a sort of a stance and action. Maybe it's pointing to something to sort of help the actor sort of remember the lines that he forgot. Sometimes it's moving the scene to, another, to the next bit of dialogue and sort of keep skipping over the, the dialogue that was forgotten. Sometimes they have to improvise. Sometimes they're fed the lines by another actor. Maybe the, act, the other actor notices that this, wow, this guy's forgotten his lines. So he might say something to might try to help him remember his lines or he might be fed the lines from somebody who is offstage. And this is why we need the body of Christ. Because we certainly have our moments when we forget the script. We forget what we're called to do. We forget our lines. And so we need someone else to remind us, hey, this is what the script says. We need somebody to come with us and encourage us, remind us, and tell us, this is what we're called to do. This is what you're called to do in this moment or in this season. So we need to continually look to the script, read the script, meditate on the script, study the script, learn the script. And the good thing is that we don't have to remember everything about it because if we have it with us, 
We simply need to just open it up and just read. It doesn't tell us everything that we should do in every moment. It doesn't tell us exactly what to say in every moment. But the script is helpful because it provides wisdom, because it helps us to know how to live consistently in those moments, in those times, in those seasons where we really don't have the answers. So we look to the script, and secondly, we must submit to the script. Because sometimes we question the script. Sometimes we look at it, we study it, we learn it, sometimes we wonder, God, is this right? God, are you sure? God, if it were me, I would write it differently. We have our own preferences. We have our own inclinations. Sometimes we want what we want, and we wish that we could go back and write the script a little bit differently. All in an effort to try to appease to our own desires. But this is why we have to trust in the script and trust in the providence of God. If God was able to take human sin and jealousy and envy and violence and take the most heinous form of cruelty that could ever be inflicted upon an innocent person and turn it into a means of salvation, a means of our salvation, then how can we not trust him with the script of our lives? If God could turn around something like that, like this crucifixion, and make it into something glorious for the salvation of many people, how can we not also trust God with the lesser of our lives and turn the trials and tragedies and sufferings and temptations and even our own sinful preferences and write a better script than we ever could and use those moments and times and seasons in our lives not for what we want, but for his own purposes, for our good. This is why we pray the Lord's will be done. Because when we do, we are submitting to the script. God, I want what I want. I wish that I could write a different script. I wish that things turned out differently. I wish this time or season in my life was very differently. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It is your script. You've written it, and you have called me to trust in it, to trust in your providence, that you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to his purpose. The author Paul Tripp had once written, better than anything impressive that you could accomplish in this life, your life story is a biography of wisdom and grace written by another. Every twist of the plot is for the best. Every turn he writes into your story is right. Every new character or unexpected event is a tool of his grace. Each new chapter advances his purpose. Time is in God's hands, and he is moving the story of our lives according to his timetable and his, for his own purposes. You and I may not always like what God has planned for our lives, But we should also be glad that we're not the ones who are writing the story, though sometimes we want that and desire it. God is the one who is the author of our story. So let us look to his word, let us submit to his script, 
trusting his providence, trusting that he is directing our paths according to his glorious purposes. Let's pray. Lord, time fails. Time fails me to speak more on what Christ has accomplished for us in the cross and how time and history and all events culminate on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That in that moment where Jesus Christ was crucified, You have begun writing a different story for us. Even though you knew from the very beginning that you would send your son and you knew whom you would save through your son, the scriptures do tell us that prior to our believing in Jesus Christ, whether you are elected or not, everyone is dead or born dead in trespasses and sins until they then believe in Jesus Christ. And it is that moment that the story takes a dramatic and glorious twist. So we thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for giving us eternal life. We thank you for making us children of God. Lord, help us to submit to your plan. Help us to trust you, that you are good. That through your fatherly hands, not only do you provide for us, but that you will also carry us through the trials and tragedies of this life and into eternal life, where there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain and agony and sorrow. Lord, let us long for that day. And until that day comes, help us to live in a manner that is consistent to what you have written in your word. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.